Hello and welcome to the Trainer Tools podcast. I'm John Tomlinson. In this episode, I'm speaking again to Roger Greenaway, who we spoke to a couple of months ago, and we did a long podcast of 49 minutes, and he's made me promise to make this one shorter. So I won't bang on for any longer in this introduction, other than to say that we are talking about learning transfer. So transferring learning from the training course back into the workplace. I'm here again with Roger Greenaway. Hi, Roger. How are you? Hi, John. Well, thank you. Well, thank you for coming back on this podcast. Your last podcast of active reviewing was the longest one we've done at 49 minutes. So that's a compliment to the quality of the content. Well, I think we may be going for something a little bit shorter this time. Yeah. Okay. Um, what do you want to talk about this time? Well, this time it kind of builds on active reviewing in a way because active reviewing is, is about um, making a learning more powerful and more memorable. And that's one of the keys to transfer of learning, which is the topic of this podcast. Transfer of learning. Yeah. Do you want to just, do you want to just define that first of all? So we can just be sure that everybody um, understands the same thing. Okay. Or to put it another way to make sure I understand the same thing. <laughs> Okay. Well, the transfer of learning is really to ensure that people who've been on a training course actually use what they learned and use it successfully. That, in a nutshell, is what transfer is. Right. So is the learning transferred to the delegates and do they then transfer it into their performance? Sometimes in a school context, people think of transfer as the transfer of knowledge from the teacher to the student. But I usually find in the training context that the principal focus of transfer is the student or participant actually using what they learn in the workplace or in the community or, or whatever they're learning to do. Right. So it's transfer from the training room environment into the real world, into yes. the workplace. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, that sounds um, extremely useful. I look forward to this one. I have, since we last spoke, used active reviewing several times, so I'm looking forward to using this one as well. Okay. Well, I hope there's some usable stuff coming up. Okay. <laughs> Well, um, before we um, started recording, you were telling me about how you've decided to pitch this. Do you want to just explain that? Yeah, I thought rather than seeing this as kind of top 10 tips for transfer or, or something of that kind, I wanted to pitch it a little bit higher so that people listening to this will already um, know something or quite a lot about transfer. And what I was going to offer was some of the more original or different um, ideas that I've contributed to this kind of field. Okay, so we're assuming a certain amount of knowledge and uh, experience of, of learning transfer techniques. Yeah. So how do you want to structure this? Well, I think it makes sense to start with saying a little more about transfer because there's a lot of misunderstandings about the term. I think I need to clarify its meaning uh, just a bit more. I've then got a number of different um, methods that I always include in my training about the transfer of learning. And I would like to include those. I'm not quite sure how many, but we'll see how we go. Okay, so you're going to talk a little bit more about transfer, what that means, and and then there's going to be an as-yet-undecided number of things. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that keeps, oh, yeah. us, keeps us guessing. Yeah, why not? Why not? Okay. On transfer, I break it down into three words. The first is transfer, the second is translate, and the third is transform. 
The reason for doing this is that when people use transfer in ordinary language, they just think about copying, about taking luggage out the boot and putting it somewhere else. It's just simply moving something from one place to another. And there's no change happening in the transfer process. Now, that does apply to some kind of learning where people are just simply learning a routine skill. But beyond that, often what people learn on training courses isn't just something that they're going to copy. It's going to be something they think about as they use it. And as they think about it, they're going to change it a bit. They're going to change it a bit to suit their personality. They're going to change it a bit to suit the situation and kind of to make it their own. And that are called translate, which is where they adapt or change what they've learned, but um, in small ways to make it work. If, if they just try to go for a straight copy, it won't work. Uh, but if they try to adapt it so that it will work, I call that translate. And I say that because it's useful if people know that when they go to apply this learning, that they need to apply it in an intelligent way and adapt it. So some learning is best, they just straight copy it. Other learning is better that they change it a bit. Then beyond that is transform, and transform is going even further. That is where the, the learner will need to be quite creative if they're going to be successful in the transfer of learning. And this might work more at the level of principles that they've learned or important insights that they've had, but the insights don't translate directly into particular things that they're going to do back in the workplace. But they go back to the workplace with these insights or with these principles and in order to use them, they have to think creatively in order to turn those principles, insights, values into practice. So this sequence is not, the, the words are new, the idea of the sequence is not really new. It's often referred to as near transfer or far transfer. But I find it useful to leave the language of transfer right behind when it comes to the, um, to the far transfer end of the spectrum. Do you set this up? Do you explain this during the actual um, course itself? Yes. And the, the important part of this is that learners on leaving a course know what their responsibilities are in the process. Do they, if it's transfer, they just have to remember and do it. If it's translate, they need to adapt it. If it's transform, they need to be creative. So if the learners know what their responsibility is to be successful, then they're much more likely to be so. That, that sounds good. I like that. So moving on from that, you said you were going to talk about, well, a vague number of things. So go on, do you want to, do you want to start talking us through that? Okay, I, I started out doing training and reviewing skills, which I was talking about in the previous uh, podcast. But I found that more and more people are asking me for transfer programs that they wanted okay we reviewing helps people learn on a program but what about their application afterwards so I took a bit of time out to study this and the book that I found uh, quite most interesting was one by Robert Haskell it was called the Tran or it is called the transfer of learning it came out in 2001 I think it promised to save me a lot of time because he was an academic who trawled through 100 years of research about the transfer of learning. So I thought, oh, good, saved me a lot of time. And he'd even condensed it into 11 principles. I thought, even better, you just read these 11 principles and you can get the world's 100 years of wisdom condensed into 11 principles. Um, now, all I use in my training is principle number 11 because he says that that one is the most important one 
of all. Um, so I expect anyone listening to this will probably want to know what principle number 11 is. Yes, I, I definitely <laughs> want to know that. Yeah, I can hear you rustling your papers there. Go on, tell yeah. us what principle so, so, 11 is. Okay. I'm, I'm actually quite interested in 1 to 10 as well. But um... Well, 1 to 5 or 6 are fairly predictable, and they become more interesting and less predictable as you go on. So anyway, he comes to um, number 11, and in number 11 he says, finally and most importantly, learners must observe and read the works of people who are exemplars of transfer thinking. This means reading systems thinkers, accounts of scientific discoveries, of invention and innovation. It means reading the great poets. Poets are masters of transfer. So that is... Okay, I'm I'm surprised, I admit. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't expect that at all. So that is uh, principle number 11. So now, as I I was um, in... A former life, I was an English teacher, and the idea that poetry somehow is the secret to uh, success in transfer quite excited me. But Robert Haskell's book is actually quite a theoretical book, and um, there weren't any practical examples that I recall to go with this principle. So he leaves you with this amazing principle, and you wonder what to do with it. So to be honest, I play around with this idea quite a lot, and I'll often give groups the... um, The choice, I say, do you want to leave this program with a plan, with an action plan, or do you want to leave this program with a poem? Which of the two is going to be most useful for you in transferring your learning from this course into your work? And we then have a debate and discussion about it using a a turntable method, usually. So um, what we're really looking at here is the difference between a very logical approach to transfer as represented in the action plan or a very creative approach to transfer represented by the poem. Um, in these discussions, a lot of new stuff usually comes out. I've learned a lot in the, uh, in the process. And um, it's led me to believe that for all kinds of transfer, but particularly for the translate and transform kind, it's really useful if you pay attention to the creative elements of, of the transfer process. So from a practical point of view, and this may not be what Robert Haskell ever intended, from a practical point of view, people usually end up at the end of these programs with both a plan and a poem. Well, if that's not what Robert Haskell intended, he should have explained himself better, shouldn't he? <laughs> quite, quite frankly. Well, maybe. But, uh, but people usually love, love playing with the idea and at least appreciate the fact that transfer is just not... It is more than a logical planning process. You make your plan, you, carry, you get support for your plan, you carry it out. Although it's important to consider that, there can be a lot more useful stuff um, to assist with transfer, especially if it's an environment where there's a lot of negative features around that make it uh, particularly challenging to to apply learning in the workplace. Sometimes a creative approach can be uh, particularly useful. I did write a poem about this, but I think I'll perhaps save that till the end. Oh, no, come on. (laughs) You can't say that. You can't set up. Okay. First of all, first of all, you're demanding your your learners write poems, which is quite you know fairly high okay. risk in one sense. So I think you have to deliver on this. Okay. Here we go. It's called Poems versus Plans, and I wrote this poem after listening to a lot of these discussions. 
You discard even the best plans when they're finished. You keep the best poems. They last forever and can inspire many plans. Poems capture the essence of the experience. Plans capture what you can use and do with it. A poem is a reminder of good times. It inspires. A plan is a pathway to better times. It inspires. Poems convert an ordinary experience into something special. Plans convert an ordinary experience into something special. Poems create something that was not there before. Plans create something that was not there before. You need imagination, creativity, rhythm and timing and a careful choice of words to be a poet. You need imagination, creativity, rhythm and timing and a careful choice of words to make a plan. Poems know when to stop. They have deadline. Ah! Did you get it wrong? <laughs> okay. Okay, here we go. Uh, plans know when to stop. They have deadlines. Poems don't. They are lifelines. Poems can be fun, profound, entertaining. Plans can create anything you want. So can poems. Very good. Very nice. That's it. Very nice. So the, the, the key difference that I understood there was something more about the timelessness of the poem. Uh, because the plan is a sort of a practical thing, still very useful, of course, yeah. but much more likely to kind of get chucked away. Yeah. Whereas the poem is capturing the essence and being more timeless. Uh, is, that could, the is that the value it's bringing? That, that could certainly be one of them. It, it depends on what kind of, what kind of poem it is. I know one thing is for sure that one of the um, I might come onto this next is one thing that can really help with transfer is some form of some kind of souvenir, some kind of physical souvenir that the person who is the person trying to make the transfer she shows to someone else. Now, poems can often end up getting framed and put on a wall and getting shown and read out. Uh, nobody is really interested in an action plan, apart from maybe from the supervisor of that person. So poems tend to get a bigger audience, a wider audience, get shared a bit more. So any any souvenir that helps people to have more conversations about their learning and how valuable it is and how important it is to them, that really helps to keep their commitment and interest going in, in, in making the learning happen. So poems is one of many kind of souvenirs in a way that can help that to happen and clearly they, they work in a different way to plans so moving on from poems yeah where, where will you take us next talking about poems and uh, the value of having or souvenirs and the value of having conversations with different people well one of the key theories that's quite popular in in, in transfer training is is a model that came from a broad and newstrom's book on the transfer of training back in the early 90s and they effectively created a three-by-three three matrix about um, what various people can do before, during, and after the training event. So this is really about sort of stakeholders, but different people who have, have a stake in the success of the training. And they identified the three key participants in this as um, the person on the course participant, uh, the trainer providing the course, and the manager of the trainer on the course because um, many trainers will have heard participants say if only my boss was on this course yeah you mean manager of the trainee yes yeah 
so that when the um, trainees on the course say, if only the boss was here, or was the boss who should be on this course, and clearly from their point of view, the boss is a block to their learning or a block to their transfer. So it makes a lot of sense to do some work with the bosses beforehand to make sure that they're on side and are seen to be supportive of the programme. So the useful conversations to be had between the manager and the trainer, the trainer and the trainee, and the trainee and the manager in advance of the course. During the course, the manager might be present, and then after the course, the manager is clearly present again in the process. So in that, within that matrix, they identify 79 different strategies, and those strategies are different kinds of conversational communication that those three different partners can have at those three different stages before, during, and after the programme. And if you apply all those 79 strategies, you can be fairly confident that transfer will happen. But the problem is, having so many strategies, do you really have the time to implement 79 strategies in order to wrap around the training programme? So you need a sense of uh, proportion in order to be quite smart about which ones you select on which uh, programmes and so on. So, so far, all I've done is explained a model that has been around for 24 years. But in that time, it has been developed. Um, I came across a version of it which said the starting point was when trainees go back to the workplace, one of the biggest blocks is their colleagues, if their colleagues have not been on the programme. So their peers or their colleagues are seen as blocks. So someone, I forget who now, added an extra line to this matrix saying it's important to involve colleagues before, during and after the programme if you want to avoid that resistance and get their support. And I was quite happy with this. It was making a little more complicated. And then one day I was showing this, using this with a training organisation and the training organisation had been smart enough to invite some of their own customers along to this training. And the customers who were taking part in my training event said, what about us? Where are we? We're not in this matrix. The customers of the organization are also stakeholders who want to see who want to see a successful outcome from the training. And these in big organizations, these could be internal customers, in smaller organizations or any organizations, they could be external customers. So I added in an extra row to this, which includes the customers. So you've now got a matrix five by three, that's 15 different possibilities. And then you end up with well over 100 strategies. And obviously, you uh, usually models are valuable because they're simple. And this is becoming a more and more complicated model. The model, as it's grown, reflects reality more. But then the more complicated it gets, maybe the less valuable it becomes as a model. But it does raise the question of, how can you enrol customers as stakeholders who are interested in and support the outcomes of the training? What might they want to say? And, and one of their ideas, for example, was we could be involved in role plays. Instead of um, having a customer in a role play, we could be real customers. So you make the role play far more real. And so they were coming up with quite a lot of smart ideas about how they could involve, be involved in the training of a kind of supplying an organisation that supplied them with some kind of service. So I think that is a key area to think about is who are the key stakeholders and how can they be engaged 
before, during and after the training. Okay, so that part of transfer is really looking at key stakeholders, obviously the line manager of the person, the colleagues, because obviously they're going to go out of the training course potentially with lots of motivation and great ideas, but then they're going to go back into a system which just works differently yeah. because of the manager, because of the colleagues, because of the customers, etc. Yeah. So it's about identifying those and then using those to help transfer the learning. Yeah. So what, what would that look like in practical terms? Initially, it will be more work because you're involving more stakeholders. There's more communication going on. But that is extra time up front. But if it works, then what you end up with is less time afterwards trying to make things happen because you've already set up systems that that support transfer. So while looking at it, it's quite... uh, People think, can we really invest in time communicating with all these stakeholders? If it works, then it's clearly been worth it because otherwise the investment in the training does not pay off. In principle, engaging all the relevant stakeholders is worthwhile. In practice, people have to work out which are the most important stakeholders for which particular programs and, and so on. Can you give me an example? The, well, I've given an example with uh, customers being involved in uh, role plays. Um, the colleagues, one of the best ways of involving colleagues is actually um, including them in the training. If, if you want to decrease the resistance of colleagues, then the, those colleagues who are about to be resistant clearly have some kind of training need. So rather than just taking out one person from a group and training them and putting them back, if you're fearing that there will be resistance from colleagues, then they must be involved in the training in some way or some other form of training. Right, so just including that example, just including the colleagues in the training. Yeah. And for what about for line managers? Line managers, for them, there were a number of strategies in the uh, original work by Broaden Newstrom. I mean, one of them I'm about to use in a course fairly soon is where you do um, interviews with managers or other stakeholders who support the course. And at the very beginning of the course, you play the video or you play the recordings so that people attending the course can see there are messages from key people in their organization who are saying this is a really important course, this is a really valuable course. If there's a history to the course, then this course has been really successful and it's had these results and so on. So you get very strong, powerful messages supporting the course at at the beginning. And that's probably even better if you get the real people in speaking live. But if that's not um, practical, then you can get recorded messages or you can get them appearing on Skype or whatever. So um, that's one key way in which um, managers can make an appearance at the beginning of the course. So using this broad, adapted broad and Newstrom matrix that also includes customers and colleagues, in order to improve transfer, it's about pre-work engaging with these key stakeholders in advance of the course to get maybe a different strategy of each one but it will be a case of including those people to make sure that learning can be transferred yes and to make that as easily easily and as likely as possible yes uh, and of course um th- this is all about good training design as well you know that the, if you're going to design a really good training event then you would probably want to do all these things anyway which is very different to just pulling something off the shelf and doing it and hoping it's going to work so um, in a way, the, the topic of transfer is something that should be an integral part of an approach to de- designing training in the first place. So that's two methods you've mentioned so far. You've talked about using poems and you've talked about the Broad and Newstrom matrix. Are we going to go on for a third? Yeah, I'd, I'd like you to in- introduce you to uh, the metaphor map. 
the metaphor map originally came from the Atlas of Experience, which is a book by two Dutch cartographers. And a friend of mine sent me a copy and said, this is a gift to reviewing. That, that's, that was the beginning of my work with metaphor maps. And it's gone in many different directions since then. The idea with a metaphor map is that it looks like a map at first glance, but when you get into it, you realise that the you discover that the places on the map are not real places, they're metaphors. So you have, for example, um, the, the city of hard work, it could be. It might be um, a cliff of despair, might be there somewhere, or a um, swamp of uh, repetitive work. Now, what I often do with this is ask people to make their, as a group exercise, to make a metaphor map. And on the metaphor map goes all the things that they encounter in a normal day at work, or on a typical day at work. So they will have things going well and things going not so well, but they will be placed in an ever-growing map with the use of pictures and diagrams and uh, all kinds of other things. And the idea with this map is that that is a map of their world of work. Uh, I've discovered, having made quite a lot of these over the years, that people get really carried away with the negatives. <laughs> and uh, if they're not given much guidance, then they end up with a really desperate map that looks like a dreadful day at work. So, uh, Or swamps and cliffs. And Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and I fell into that trap just now by giving you negative examples. But there should be um, examples of green meadows and flowers and sunshine and uh, all kinds of good things happening as well. So it might be the stream of ideas, for example, is one that comes up quite a lot of the time. There isn't a requirement to make it fit all the ideas fit a geographical feature, but it helps to do that to, to get the process going in the first place. Th these maps actually operate, what once played around with the idea, they operate on three different scales. One scale is the paper size, which is a sheet of A4 on which you have a ready-made map. And that map might actually represent your training program. This could be made on the course with participants, or it could be made by the trainer in advance. And the map represents the world of work of the people that the trainer is working with. So after the course, with this bit of paper, the participant of the course will go to their supervisor back in the workplace. And the supervisor will ask them this one question. Where have you been since last supervision? Where have you been on this map? And the person will trace the journeys that they have made since the last supervision up to the present supervision. So that is the opening question. The second question is, are you satisfied with the journeys that you made? And if not, there is a third question, then how would you like to make different kinds of journeys between now and the next supervision? So it's a, it's a process of reflection but it also leads to planning. But the difference between this and action planning is action plans tend to be quite linear, whereas this um, in the map process looks for patterns and repeated processes and kind of good systems that are followed and negative systems that are followed. So the idea is that rather than the question between supervisor and worker being have you done this or haven't you done this, that the questions become subtly changed to talking about journeys and systems. 
it's much easier to do so with the help of a map on which you can trace journeys than just having a conversation. So it's kind of visual aid that assists supervision process. I'm, I'm struggling to picture this. Right. Imagine, so let me talk for an example, and you can correct me if I've misunderstood you, right. but you can, you, can, you can sort of talk me through how it might go. Right. Let's, say I've drawn, let's say I've drawn my map, and my map shows that I spend a lot of my day at work getting lost, going around in circles in the forests of annoying customers. Yes. And feeling very restricted and bound in by the cliffs of ridiculous corporate policy. Yes. Or some, something like that. Yes. So my kind of frustrations are essentially, I feel the policy is restricting me and, and I'm not able to give good customer service because of that. So I'm, I'm getting trapped in these stupid circles with customers. Yes. That's, that's my kind of beef. Right. Not in, not in real life. This is just an example. Right. Yes. So what, so what's my conversation? If you're my supervisor, what's my conversation going to be with you? Well, the, the, the map would not just, you, you've, the two examples you've given are of things not working well. So yeah. somewhere on the map, there would also be places for things working well. So if the supervisor hears those two things to start with, then the next question would be, okay, we'll come back to that. But where else have you been on the map? Have you been here? Have you been here? Have you been here? Okay. So, so I've been, I've, let's say I've been into this. There's, there's, a, there's a nice playground there where I have a great time with my colleagues. We, we bond and get on quite well. Right. Okay, good. And there's the there's the sunny green meadows of budget management. Because yeah. let's pretend that I love doing spreadsheets yeah. and budget. Yeah. So I've had a great time knocking around with the budget as well. Okay, right. That's good. That gives the supervisor something to work with. I mean, there are a number of different ways you could solve a problem. Your four examples are, are very useful ones. You can ask about the reasons why things went particularly well, whether they did, and can those strategies that you use in those areas be used to help you in areas where things are not working so well. That, that is, is, is one possibility. Or you could ask, how could it be possible for you to spend more time in these, in these better areas? How, how could you get there? Or how could you bring more strengths from these other areas into these areas that you're struggling with? Or some examples you gave were not just about personal performance. They were about the problems in relations with other people too so that might become the uh, the or, or with procedures i think you mentioned well yeah i mean that could be the fact that these policies and procedures were restricting me and that that's a perfectly genuine complaint but it could well be that those policies and procedures work perfectly well in the office down the road right and therefore is there something around my own performance there could be more depth yes. behind that yeah this is a useful examples that you've come up with but what um, but we're having this conversation without the help of actually having a physical map in front of us. True. <laughs> it's when you do have the physical map in front of you and people are pointing at the map and tracing their fingers uh, over the map, then it's a different kind of conversation because you're talking about, you tend to be talking about systems and processes. And this brings in back to the uh, original example of um, poems and plans. It being, brings in a bit of creative thinking into the into the process. So it's essentially a tool to help you have a more creative approach to those conversations. Yes. yes. Around what works, what doesn't work. Yes. Those kind of things. Yes. In what way does that help in the terms of transfer of learning? Okay, it's because you can keep going back to the map. Because in a plan, you've done the plan and it's gone. But if you make a map, then the map, you can keep going back to it because it is the map of the workplace. It's the map of that department. So the map lasts for a much longer time. And if after 
time you realize you need to create new areas on the map or make a new map, then you could do so. But one map lasts a lot longer than one plan. So it becomes a resource that has several uses rather than just plan, do it, and you finished. So the, believing that the map doesn't actually contain actions, it contains experiences attached to geographical features, but it's, yes. it, doesn't, it doesn't have actions, does it? Well, yeah. I mean, the actions might arise from the conversation, or should arise rather, from the conversations you have around the, the map. But the map, the beginning of the supervision, the, the map is a reflective tool to reflect on the period in between. Uh, towards the end of the supervision process, it would probably lead to some kind of action. The action may or may not be shown on the map. The action would probably be shown separately on an, some form of action plan. But the action might involve creating some new pathway on the map or some new shortcut from one part to another part. So it's possibility to use the maps to more directly assist the planning process. Yeah, I can see the attraction of it. I personally love maps and enjoy, I like kind of drawing stuff. I was just struggling to understand how it works as a way of capturing what I've learned. As, as a souvenir, it makes a lot of sense. But I suppose when you were talking about the conversation with a supervisor, I didn't feel like I was looking at a map of my learning. I felt I was looking at a map of my workday experience. Yeah. Well, on the work, the workday experience represents your your habits, your routines, your patterns, your pathways, uh, all these kind of things. If you're on a training course, there's implication that you're going to be changing some of these things and um, making new pathways or visiting new places or spending more efficient time in some places and taking more challenges in other areas. And, you know, there's, there's going to be a change in the dynamics of your work routine. And this map can help you to see those uh, dynamics and the possibilities and so on. It's... Um, to people who are used to thinking in linear ways, they might struggle a bit with the idea of a map. But people who struggle with thinking in linear ways, a map is a real, um, real help because it matches their way of thinking far better than the kind of linear action plan. So I think with all these these um, different things, like just as with the plans and the poems, that the idea for the trainer is to help people find ways of thinking, ways of learning, kinds of souvenirs that are going to work for them, rather than having, rather than the trainer offering one favourite kind of souvenir and expecting everyone to use an identical one. It's giving learners a bit more, a little more choice and freedom to create something that will help them in their transfer process. Yeah, I'm very drawn to the idea of creative, of, of having a creative souvenir right. that has a kind of idiosyncratic way of representing what they're going to do with the learning. So I, I like the principle behind it a lot. I'm, I'm just struggling to understand that one a little bit. That's all. Just just because I can't I can't quite get where the learning is captured. That's the bit I'm missing. We're struggling a little, I think, in the medium of audio when really a lot of these ideas are best understood in a visual way. Could you email me a copy of a map that I could then put on the Trainer Tools website so that anybody listening to this could go and reference a visual which will help us. What a brilliant idea. Yes. Thank you. So yeah, please, we'll um, we'll have a visual on the website by the time this is released. Okay. So we're going to try and stick to our ambition of not of going under 49 minutes <laughs> with this one, Roger. <laughs> so let's just do one more. Right. What what do you want to do as your as your last method for learning transfer? Okay, I think I'll go for something I call making learning sticky. 
Okay. And this is a deliberate play on a phrase that I come across a lot in uh, transfer of learning, which is about making learning stick. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. So you're saying make it sticky rather than stick. Yes. And this uh, relates, it's a good one to finish with because it relates back to where we started on um, transfer, translate and transform. So if the training is about training and routine skills, things that are to be copied, remembered and done, then you want to make learning stick. But most training I've ever been involved with is a little more ambitious than that and is about uh, translating or transforming. So um, if you're operating in these areas of far transfer where you want people to apply their learning um, intelligently, thoughtfully, creatively and so on, then making learning stick doesn't really make sense. Whereas I think making learning sticky does. And and the way I go about this is is not uh, using... Can you just say what you mean by the difference between making learning stick and making learning sticky? Well, making learning stick kind of ties in with a model of unconscious competence where people have learned something so well that it's become part of them and they don't really t- need to make a lot of deliberate effort to, to transfer it because it has just become their new way, way of working. It's become unconsciously competent. Yeah, yeah. whereas making learning sticky is more where you've learned something on a training course that you think is really valuable, it's going to really help you in some way, but you're not quite sure how. And there's a series of questions that I ask people to use usually through interviews in in order to increase the chances that these ideas are a a, a bit like a sticky seed floating around in the wind. A a little more chance that this sticky seed floating around the wind, which carries the valuable learning, is actually going to stick somewhere and take root and, and flourish and so on. So that's the kind of metaphor that it works with. So... I have a number of questions which are intended to help people look for opportunities to use the learning. Now, for some people, this is back to front because they think, right, we send you on a training course because we want you to do this. And that's very kind of clear thinking. But I think often people are sent on training courses not because there is a clear problem at work that needs fixing, but they're sent on training courses uh, because think it'll be good for their continuing professional development. They think it represents the next stage and they think it will benefit the person, but they're not sure precisely how they're going to use it in the workplace. And that's the kind of area in which making learning sticky might work particularly well. If I'll just give you some examples, it it might make a little more sense. So one is to make the seed of learning more sticky. And for this, it might be recognize its value. So think of three reasons why this learning is important for you. So rather than just the one obvious reason, think for others. So it's getting people to think a bit wider. Consider its potential uses. Uses, And I think of three ways in which it could be used. Imagine, imagine other possibilities. Um, identify internal barriers, explore the boundaries, etc., etc. So all the time, this form of questions is rather than looking at the obvious application of a piece of learning, is to think a bit more widely and more broadly and more creatively about how the learning could be used. I'm sure some people listening to this will think, that's back to front, we only send people on training courses because we know what they, what we want them to learn. But I think there's quite a lot of training courses in the world which 
do work this way around, where it's an opportunity for somebody to learn and develop and grow. And you hope that in the right kind of atmosphere, the right kind of stimulation, when they leave, they will find good uses for the new learning. I mean, I, I used to work a lot of management development programs where each manager on these programs was learning different things. Um, they were sent on open programs and they had no specific briefing. It was just thought it was going to be something that was useful for them. These, pro- these kind of programs still happen and sticky learning is particularly suitable for such programs, but potentially useful for any program because however narrowly focused the program, if the learning is sticky, that increases the chances that that learning will be will be thought about more and be used in more different ways. So it adds value to what has been learned. Well, I'm a great fan of that kind of training, that kind of learning as well. I think exposing people to new ideas, ideas they may have not have thought, things they hadn't considered they even might be interested in or might be able to use. Naturally, that's going to land and sometimes it won't be very obvious how to use it, even if they feel there's some value in it somewhere. Mm. So I think the idea of making it sticky is really valuable. Mm. And the, the process you were suggesting there was a kind of a three-question interview that people would do to help them think through yeah, it's, it's, how to... Uh, yeah, it's, it's starting to make lists of... Very short lists, but it's by making lists, you're, you're starting off with the obvious and then getting into the less obvious areas, yeah. Is there any other aspect to the sticky learning? Because you said that that was, for example, the sticky seed. <laughs> no, no, there are three, three categories of questions I have here. One is making the seed of learning sticky. One is making the soil of learning sticky. And the other is uh, a series of what-if questions um, to make the learning even more sticky. So, again, it's kind of looking at a systems approach to the learning. That The soil of learning is colleagues, the organisation and so on, is how to make them more interested or more receptive in what you've learned. And the what-ifs is just um, unashamedly create a temptation to think creatively about the uh, possibilities for non-obvious ways in which the learning could be used. Uh, Because, for example, if somebody has learned a very narrowly focused bit of learning that is for using in the workplace, you could do a what-if process and might make them realise, oh, yes, I could use that in my hobby or I could use that in my family or I could use that um, in in some other way. So if they realise that something they've learned primarily for making them more effective in the workplace also has other uses in other areas of life, of their life, then they're more likely to value that piece of learning and become better at it if it also involves um, performance. So it gives them more opportunities for practice in other areas. So I was perhaps wrong a little earlier to say that this sticky approach is for the more creative end of the spectrum. I think a sticky approach has an application to throughout the transfer spectrum from transfer, copy, translate, adapt and transform, create. So if you were actually doing this in a training course, you'd be saying, presumably somewhere towards the end of the course, what are the key things that you kind of most engaged with, felt had most potential for you personally, and then you'd go through this process of seed, soil, and what-ifs? Yes, yes. And, and would they be drawing that up, as you said, into a list? I suppose they could draw it up into maps, mind maps, whatever, couldn't they, really? Um, action plans? Yeah, it could go into an action plan. But the nature of the questions is, yeah, is to get people thinking more creatively about what they can do with the learning. Some of those creative ideas they might want to put into an action plan, but I think the value of this is that there are creative possibilities still hanging around in a person's consciousness and not necessarily that every good idea they come up with goes into the action plan. 
There was a strange noise then. Oh. <laughs> Thanks for that, Roger. I'm very drawn to that idea of stickiness, because a lot of the training I do is that kind of thing, where it's sort of behavioural things that people can't necessarily use immediately or use all the time. I'm, I'm finding myself drifting off and thinking about ways that I can apply that, because I think that's really, really useful. So to summarise, you talked about the idea of learning transfer being the transfer of learning from the training course into the actual workplace to actually drive some kind of change in the performance for the for the employee going back into their workplace. That's what we mean by transfer. And we don't just transfer where we take a skill we've learned and apply it. We could translate it, which is where we make fairly small adaptations to that learning for our particular circumstances. Or we could completely transform it, where we get ideas and inspiration but that actually leads to quite different behaviours in the workplace. Is that a reasonable summary so far? Please jump yes, in if you can. Yes, Miles off. Yes, and I'm glad that last conversation about making learning sticky is having you drift off in all directions because it is. that's precisely what it's meant meant to do. But yes. it's not always helpful. It's not always helpful if you're trying to if if I host a podcast at the same time. <laughs> if, if I've got you drifting off at precisely the point when you're trying to do a nice tidy summary. Yeah, well, that yeah, I um I did lose concentration at the end for that reason, but I, I think I covered it up well, and I'm glad we haven't drawn attention to it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so after that, you then talked through poems. First of all, that came from the eleventh principle of Robert Huskell. Yeah. So after that, you used the broad and Neustrom matrix, adapted it to include customers and colleagues, and how that would include uh, how the need, the importance of including those stakeholders beforehand. Then you talked about metaphor maps, and we talked through that. And then last, about how to make learning sticky. Yes. Loads and loads of ideas in there, Roger. So thank you very much for that. And we will put the metaphor map on the website so people can actually see the visual, which will make it easier to, to get that piece. And I will take some time to think about that. And probably when I'm editing that cast, loads more of ideas will come through and I will lose concentration again. <laughs> but, uh, but thank you very much for that. I think that's some really valuable stuff. Okay. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure. So that was me speaking to Roger Greenaway, desperately trying to keep it under 49 minutes. If you want to know more about Roger, please go to the Trainer Tools website, trainer-tools.com, and there is a page there with Roger's information, links, and all that kind of thing. If you want to support this podcast, please go to iTunes, give us a nice, lovely review, and please share the content around Twitter, LinkedIn, and what have you. Really appreciate any support that you can give. Thank you very much. Hope to see you next time. 